0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Fullerton, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Fullerton, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes. Not all of them specific to Fullerton. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and today I have a really exciting class. This is sort of a continuation of yesterday's class, and today we're going to go over something that I feel I feel is being sort of misrepresented in the marketplace in some ways, and and I'll explain to you what I mean. So we've just this is uh, October twenty twenty three that I record this, although this could really be any point in time. But uh, some of the backstory is very relevant to the time period we just left. So right now, over the last, I don't know, five years or so, we've seen real estate values skyrocket. We've seen a a massive increase in the amount of equity that a lot of real estate investors have in their properties. And there's this push, I think, just in general, but also from real estate agents in particular, that investors should re-leverage up their properties. They should take some of the equity, some of the dead equity that they've got in their properties that they have uh, seen from, you know, having these really low mortgage interest rates where interest rates were really, really low. So that the amount that they're paying down in principle, especially early on, is much larger than when you have higher interest rates. Plus, they're seeing their property prices go up a lot. And so the amount of equity they have in their properties is really, really high. And we all know, well, I hope you all know, that as you... Uh, own a property for a longer period of time, as your equity grows in the property, the return you're earning on that equity tends to decline. It's a real phenomenon. This actually exists. Like when you own a property for a period of time, the returns you're earning compared to how much you have invested in the deal, the equity you still have locked up in the deal actually goes down over time. And so there's this tendency, this desire for a lot of real estate investors to say, hey, I've got all this equity in my properties. My return on equity is going down. What I should do is either re-leverage my property, go refinance out some of the money I've got tied up in there, or sub my properties and take the equity and then redeploy it, re-leverage up, go from having, you know, 50, 60, 70% of equity back down to 20% of equity by putting 20% down when you buy a property or doing the nomad or house hacking strategy where you're buying properties as an owner-occupant to move into. You know, you can do three and a half percent down with FHA loans or five percent down conventional, or even zero percent down with like a VA loan or something like that. So you can re-leverage up, take some of the money you have locked up in one property and apply it to buy, you know, one, two, three, four, five other properties to kind of do this. And so what today's class is about, it's about this concept of expected value. And specifically, I'm calling this class why it's risky to leverage up when investing in real estate. Now, I wanna be 100% clear. I'm not telling you do not leverage up. I'm not telling you to leverage up either though. What I want you to understand is why it's risky to leverage up. And I want to show you some examples as to why you may not want to do this and what could possibly happen so that you do this with eyes wide open and you make a educated decision when you do this. Plus, at the end, I might show you some really, really advanced stuff that we're doing where I go to Freaky Town um, about how we model some of this stuff to model more realistic examples of what's happening in the real world. So this class is called Expected Value, Why It's Risky to Leverage Up, when investing in real estate. And I'm going to jump right into the presentation. And first, I'm going to define expected value, because some of you are like, expected value, what? What is that whole thing? So what is expected value? Expected value is the average of the probability-weighted outcomes that you might see in a situation. The Oxford Dictionary's definition is, a predicted value of a variable, like net worth or cash flow, or how long it's going to take you to be financially independent, or a measure of risk like debt to income or debt to net worth, or you know any of these other measures that we have. it's any variable that you want to do, but it is a, according to Oxford Dictionary's definition, a predicted value of a variable calculated as the sum of all of the possible values each multiplied by the probability of their occurrence. And I'm going to go into some examples, but I want you to just understand like what is happening here. So for us, we might ask something like, what is my estimated net worth or cash flow, or the month that we achieve financial independence, where we look at all of the different things that could happen and what the probability of each thing happening is. So if we say, okay, look, I'm going to make this investment in this property. A year from now, what will my net worth be? Well, property values could go up. They could go up a lot in the next year. It's possible we could see a you know ten percent plus increase in property values. But is that a very likely event? Is that very likely to happen? And the answer is we don't know. But we could guess and say you know that's not like ninety percent chance that that's going to happen. You know, it's we're not thinking that it's going to be a ninety percent probability that property values are going to go up ten percent. Could it happen? Sure. Maybe it's a ten percent chance and and. Picking these probabilities is difficult, but the idea is that you do your best, you pick like what you think could happen. Now, is it likely that property values will go up a little bit in the next year? Sure, I think that that's a reasonable assumption for a lot of folks. And so maybe you say, oh, 40% chance that property values are gonna go up in the three to 5% range. And then you could say, well, I also think it could be somewhere between zero and three percent that they go up. And so you can go ahead and estimate the probability of that being whatever it is, 20% or so. But there is also a probability that property values will go down. And there's a chance that it'll go down a little bit, you know, zero to negative three percent. And then you could say that's about whatever it is, 20%. And then you could say there is also a chance that we will see a pretty significant decline in property values. Maybe that's a, I don't know, five or 10% chance where it goes between negative three and negative five, or negative three and negative six, or negative three and negative 10, or whatever you decide your numbers are and what the Probability is. Then the idea is you could use all of those estimates you came up with. You know, there's a 10% chance it's going to go up 10%, and a 40% chance it's going to go up, you know, somewhere between, you know, three and 6%, and, you know, an X percent chance. And you could actually look at all that and you could do some basic math to determine what the average of all of those probability weighted estimates are to see what is likely for you and see what you are likely to achieve when we do that. So let's look at a really simple, I would argue overly simple or oversimplified example of why leveraging up adds risk. And I'll start with something basic and then I'll add a little bit of complexity and then I'll show you a lot more complexity uh, with a very basic example, a very advanced example, but a a brief example of what that is. Okay, so imagine for a second that you have a six-sided die, no regular die that you might play in Monopoly or something like that. And you're betting with the roll of the die that the property you're about to buy is going to do something, okay? And so you're betting basically $100,000 a down payment on the roll of the die. If the die lands on a six, then the property you bought does really, 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 really well and it's worth a million dollars. Your $100,000 initial investment becomes worth a million dollars total, okay? That's only if you roll a six. If the die lands on one, though, then you are forced into foreclosure the market goes horribly wrong. You have to jettison the property. You have to actually give the property back to the bank. You, you lose the full $100,000 that you invested in the deal, and you lose your credit. You have bad credit when you do that too, okay? So if it lands on one, then you're forced into foreclosure. You lose your entire $100,000 investment. The investment goes completely to crap, okay? But if the die lands on two, three, four, or five, not a one, not a six, but any of the other numbers, two, three, four, or five, Um then your $100,000 investment is worth $150,000. So you have a reasonable return on your investment over some period of time. You know, it's not just like instantly, but over some period of time, it performs reasonably well over the ownership period. So the question is, should you roll the die? Should you make the investment in this house? And what is the probability weighted average of all those results? So let's look at the math. And I created this brand new spreadsheet which I will give to you as a download. I didn't uh, set up a link for it, so I'll have to put a link in the uh, show notes or something like that for you to get it. But it is a expected value, a risk and reward calculator, and it doesn't actually have to be for real estate investing, although this is a really good tool for you to estimate, a really basic tool for you to estimate what is going on with your real estate stuff. So what we did is we just put into this spreadsheet what the different results were, what the value of those things would be after those results happened, and what the probability of that happening are And then we do some calculations and I show you what the expected value is. So I'll go walk you through it. So um, this is just the numbered examples of them. So you can put in as many as you want up to 12. Um, Of course, you can expand the spreadsheet if you need to in order to do more than 12, but I put 12 in here as kind of a placeholder to keep it neat. So number one, property does really, really well. You roll a six on the die and that in that case, you make a million dollars. And the probability of that happening is one out of 6 or about 16.7%. And so the weighted average of that, when we do the math, is $166,667. You don't need to worry about the weighted average number, but just realize it's doing a calculation for you there. Uh, You do need to put in the value, and you do need to calculate the probability for this. Um, So you can just put in whatever you estimate to be. In this case, it's a die. It's one out of six. So when the property does okay, you roll a two, three, four, or five on the die, then the value becomes one hundred and fifty thousand. So your hundred thousand dollars becomes worth one hundred and fifty thousand in that case, and the probability of that happening is four chances out of six, or about sixty-six point seven percent chance of it happening. And then the property goes horrifically bad, horribly wrong when you roll a one on the die, and your hundred thousand dollar investment becomes worth zero in that case. So the value is zero here, and that happens one time out of six. And in those cases, we do some math on that, and we determine that the expected value of you placing a hundred thousand dollar bet on a roll of the die, in other words, putting hundred thousand dollar down payment, buying an investment property, where these are the only three options, although they're not weighted equally, then that that probability, the expected value, the the value, the probability weighted value of this particular bet you're making is two hundred sixty six thousand six hundred sixty six dollars and sixty seven cents. So. In this case, if you could run this, if you had a million parallel lives to run, then on average, you would earn $266,667. $266.67. Wow, it's a mouthful. Um, uh, On average of all those. Now, here's what's crazy about this, is there are times if you roll the six on the die when you do really, really well. You make a million dollars, you look like a stud, and you start telling people about all the different special skills you have of rolling a die and how, you know, how amazing you are rolling a six. And yeah, I did that. You know, my, my $100,000 investment now became a million dollars and you look like a superstar. But really, it was a roll of the die to a lot of, you know, to a great extent. Now, you, you chose to roll the die. You chose to put the $100,000 in. And this is a parallel to like investing in real life. Like some of the things are out of our control. We don't know how the general economy will do. We can kind of make some predictions about that. But historically, we were, were really bad about making predictions about how things like this occur, okay? So you go in there and one roll of die, you make a billion dollars. But there's a lot of times when you just do okay. You know, you put $100,000 in over a period of time, you know, several years or whatever, your $100,000 is worth one hundred and fifty, And that's the majority of the time. But what if in one of your lives, your $100,000 investment was the time when everything went to crap and it went to zero? You don't feel so good about that. And unless you have another $100,000 sitting right behind you, where you can take that and redeploy it and make another investment right afterwards in order to do this, the chance of you having that another $100,000 is relatively low for most people. So the trick is, when you're looking at these things, you need to not only look at the probability and the expected value of how this might do overall, but you need to look at how much of a variance there is. In one case, you make a million dollars. That's one out of six chance. In one case, you make zero dollars or you lose all of your money. And that's a one in six chance. But there's a huge middle where two thirds of the time, you are actually only going to make $150,000 on that particular investment. So you got to decide, is it worthwhile that one time out of six, I'm going to go broke and one time out of six, I'm going to become a millionaire. And like, Two thirds of the time, four out of six, I'm actually going to just do okay on this particular investment. And that's sort of the decision we're talking about as to when you should leverage up. So let me talk to you about this example. And this is just one of many examples I could have given you, but I think this demonstrates it pretty clearly. And so I'll just use this one and we could do more of these in the future, especially if you like and go and reply to me, send me a comment if you you like this video and we could do more variations on different things, not just this one example, because I think it does, It's really interesting to think about this for a lot of different examples, but this one is particularly good. So let's look at the expected value. If you have one property, it's a $500,000 property, and you own it free and clear. You don't have any mortgages on it. You have $500,000 that you can invest. You buy one free and clear property. So you own one property and it's uh, worth 500K. So we have a couple of different things that could happen in the marketplace though. Okay, I set up five different scenarios. One scenario is, where property values go up six percent, and you have six percent higher rent, and we're kind of looking at like a year out. So this is sort of like one year of number where you're able to get six percent more rent and six percent appreciation on a particular property. And in that case, if you own one five hundred thousand dollar property, including all the different benefits of investing in real estate, you know, cash flow, your uh cash flow from depreciation, appreciation, and debt pay down, which is not in this particular case, your $500,000 becomes worth $571,972. And I've said, you know, there's a 10% chance that that will happen, that property values will go up 6% and you'll have 6% more in rent. And so we do that calculation to show you what the weighted value of that is. Now I say to you, okay, there's also a chance that property values will go up 3% you know, a, re- a relatively reasonable appreciation rate on a single property and that you're getting 3% more rent. And so if you do that, it's worth 555,000, almost $556,000. But I've said that that is probably the most likely scenario that 55% of the time, more than half the time, that is likely what's going to happen. You're just going to see slow and steady appreciation about 3% per year. And you're going to see 3% higher rents when you do that. And so you make, $55,000, almost $56,000 on your $500,000 investment, kind of doing that deal. Okay. But that happens most of the time, 55% of the time. There's another scenario where you see no appreciation. Your property that you bought for $500, a year later, is still worth $500, and you don't see any premium or any discount on rent. It's flat. So no rent appreciation and uh, no appreciation on that property. And in that case, your $500,000 property made you about $39,514. They have about five hundred dollars you'll know, round up a little bit about $540,000 doing that. And I think there's about a 20% chance of that happening where because of the market conditions, prices were way up over the last bunch of years. Interest rates are at 8%. And so we're saying, look, instead of property values going up, they're not going down, but they're not going up either. They're sort of just going to hold their own and they're going to stay there for a year. And so we have about a 20% chance or a one in five chance that that is going to happen. Now, I also think that there's a chance we're going to see a price decline that property values will go down by 3% and that we will have 3% lower rent. And if that's the case, you're only gonna make $23,285 by buying this $500,000 rental property. And I'm assuming it's gonna take, that's gonna happen about 10% of the time. So this is a 10% chance that instead of property values going up or staying the same, that they actually go down and rents are a little bit less than what you thought they were gonna be as well uh, by about 3%. And then finally, I said that happens 10% of the time, if, not, if I didn't say that. And then finally, I think there's a chance, might be a small chance, but there's a chance we're gonna see a pretty significant decline, a negative 6% appreciation rate and a lower rent, about 6% lower rents in that particular property. And in that case, you only made $7,055 on that particular property because you still have a little bit of debt pay down, you still have some tax benefits. So even though the property value went down, you still were profitable on the property. It was just a really small amount of profit. So your $500,000 property, you know, the overall assets that you have now are about 507,055. And I think there's about a 5% chance that that is going to happen, or about one chance in 20 that you're going to see that decline. Now, if we take all the values I just told you, and we multiply them by their probability, we can figure out what the weighted average is, or what the weighted value is, and then we can calculate expected value. You don't need to know the math. The spreadsheet does it for you. But the expected value of you making a $500,000 investment now is about $548,439.90. So when you look at this, you're like, okay, that's great. You know, I make a $500,000 investment. Even with taking into account that the market could go down, I'm still going to make about $548,439. If I had an infinite number of lifetimes to run this in parallel and the infinite number of universes where this could possibly happen, this is what my result is. And when you look at this, you think to yourself, okay, you know, if things went really, really well, I would love to take my $500,000 investment and make it 571 in about a year. And even if things went really, really ugly for me, I had this $500,000 investment and it's only worth 507. So I didn't lose a lot of ground if this happened. Now, let's take this same property, but let's buy five identical ones, put 20% down instead. This is the idea of releveraging up, right? you have a bunch of equity in your property, in this case, 100% of equity. And instead of buying this one property and having a ton of equity in it and having to be really resilient to price declines and really resilient to rent declines, what we're going to say is, look, we're going to take this same $500,000 and I'm going to put $100,000 down on one, $100,000 down on two, 100000 on three, 100000 on four, 100000 on five. So now I got five leveraged properties. They're not going to cash flow nearly as well. In fact, you know they're going to cash flow about $100 a month At like the the rent appreciation being zero, we're going to say it's about, you know, $100 a month in positive cash flow uh, when you're buying these properties. So 20% down in this particular example. But we're going to look at what happens in all of these five different scenarios where you have 6% appreciation, 3%, no appreciation, negative three and negative six, all with the same probabilities. So we're going to see how this differs. And that's what this shows you. So the one where you have 6% appreciation, 6% higher rents, the values because you're leveraged, because you've now five properties now, that $500,000 investment is now worth $700,465. You basically had like almost a 40% return, $200,000 return on a $500,000 investment. You're crushing it. And so if that 10% chance of this happening happens, you're looking great. It's amazing for you. The one where you have a 3% appreciation rate and 3% higher rents, You have 619,000. So you made about $120,000 approximately on that investment because things went in your favor and you re-leveraged up and things look awesome. And remember, that's the largest probability one. There's a 55% chance that we think that property values are going to go up about 3% and that rents are going to go up about 3%. And so we're thinking that that's what's likely going to happen. There's a 55% chance that that's going to happen there and that you'll do pretty well because you made about $119,000, a little bit more than $119,000 doing that. In the case where property values don't go up at all and that rent doesn't go up at all, you still make about $38,170 on this particular deal. You go from 500 to about 538,170. And we think that's gonna happen about 20% of the time. But here's where it gets tricky. If you have negative 3% appreciation and you have 3% lower rents, you actually end up losing money. The $500,000 you had invested now is only worth 457. So you've lost, what is that, $43,000 because the property values went down 3% and you have 3% lower rents. This is the downside of leveraging up. This is the ugly side of that happening. And even though we're only saying that it happens 10% of the time, how would you like your 10% the one lifetime you're living because you can't average this out. You can't do this a million, an unlimited times in parallel. You have one life. And what if your one life means that you're at that negative 3% and you've got that lower rent? And so there's a risk that you actually could go from your $500,000 to being worth less than that $500,000. You could be negative. And yes, I do understand that, you know, you give this enough time and may recover and all that other stuff. I totally understand that and I agree. The longer you hold real estate, the less risky it tends to be because over a very long period of time, real estate tends to appreciate about that slow and steady 3% per year. Rents tend to go up about the same as inflation, about 3% per year, and that you're, you end up paying down the loan over time and that gets better. So, I do get that the longer you hold this, the less risk you have. But I want you to understand where this extra risk comes from and how it actually plays out when you look at this expected value concept. The final one negative 6% appreciation and 6% lower rent. And that $500,000 that you had invested is now only worth $375. So, you lost about $124,000 and change by having the property values go down, where before, The worst case scenario had you gain $7,000 because you only owned one property and it was free and clear. Now property values dip a little bit. You're down $120,000. Now you're starting to grow from there. And even though that only happens 5% of the time, it is calculated in here. So even though our expected value is higher, you know, before it was 548,000. Now it's 582,000 because you're leveraged and we're, it's more likely, we believe, it's more likely probabilistically that the property value is going to increase, that rents are going to increase, and that's likely the future. You also have situations where it's less. So it was 548, now it's 582,803. So your expected value has increased. The chance of things going in your favor are still. In your favor. I mean, the, the, the expected value kind of gives you an idea of probabilistic weighted um, outcomes that you might expect to have based on how likely they are to happen. But how yeah. would you like to be the one where you lose $125,000 or you lose $43,000? Those are ugly. And those could happen 10% of the time and 5% of the time. but combined to 15% between the two of them. So while there's a really good chance this could work out great for you if you leverage up, the danger is there are some situations where it does not work out well for you at all. And you can end up losing money on this. So that's sort of the idea as to why you might want to think twice about leveraging up or the risks associated with leveraging up in real estate. So I just have some notes in here. Let me make sure I cover these. So when you increase leverage, there's a chance that with a reasonable drop in price of rent, you end up losing part of your initial investment. So if we go from that one free and clear property to five, down, fully leveraged property, fully leveraged investment properties, there is a chance that you lose money if the property values decline a little bit. So think about that before you take all this money and re-leverage up. There's also a chance you do a lot better than you would without re-leveraging up. So the upside is greater, but there also is a dark side, a downside to this happening, which I want you to be aware of. And again, like I said at the beginning, I'm not telling you to leverage up and I'm not telling you not to leverage up. I just want you to understand what the pros and cons are and what the risks are associated with this and why it does add risk for you to decide to leverage up on your properties, okay? So estimating probabilities. What can be difficult is correctly, reasonably estimating probabilities, especially when you're a newer real estate investor and you don't know what is normal. I spent a lot of time talking to you about like the assumptions we use when we're doing deal analysis and things like that. And it's based on long-term history. I, I mean, there's... um. There's a tendency in a market very close to where I live for people to use 6% appreciation on properties when they're doing their deal analysis. And some people come to me, they're like, uh, you know, James, so-and-so uses 6% when they do their deal analysis. And it's based on you know, the fact that that particular city has seen you know, 6% appreciation, depending on how they calculate it, it could be that um, over the last whatever X number of years. As I say, why are you using 3%? Because I'm conservative, it's, that's why. Because my number is based on the overall nationwide average over, I forget the exact number, but it's like 80 plus years or 100 years. I forget the exact number on that, But it, over a very long period of time, I'm using the Case-Shiller number to show what the appreciation rate is over a very long period of time. It's 3%. okay? And the inflation rate is about 3.1. And so inflation and appreciation are about the same. Okay, So property values tended to keep pace with inflation one of the arguments some people use as to why you shouldn't invest in real estate. Real estate just barely keeps pace with inflation. Why would you go and invest in that? Because it keeps pace with inflation and we can leverage it. So even though we're seeing a 3% increase that's keeping pace with inflation, we may only have you know, 20% invested. In, so we're getting five times that or 15% return, five times 3% per year, 15% return. And inflation is only 3%. So we're gaining 12% a year on inflation. That's why we invest in real estate. One of the reasons. Okay. So people will argue, you know, I don't want to invest in real estate because it just keeps facing inflation. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> that's great. Okay. So when some people say to you, hey, look, you know, real estate in my market historically over the last five years has appreciated 8%, I should use 8% in my appreciation number of my spreadsheet analysis. I don't think so. I, I think that's a little optimistic. I do not encourage you to do that. And so coming up with these numbers to use is really, really difficult like what you should use for values is really difficult. And additionally, coming up with what probability, what the chances are of that happening are also very, very difficult to do, especially when you're new. How do you know when I did my assumptions over here, how did I know that there was a 10% chance that property values go up by 6% and higher rent? I guessed. It's an educated guess, but I guessed. You know, It says about one year out of 10, property values are gonna go up 6% or so and you're gonna see 6% higher rents. Is it possible that I'm wrong with that number? Sure. Is it possible it's 1%? Sure. Is it possible it's 20%? Probably not. You know, probably not. You know, that would mean that every 5 years that we're seeing property values go up by that much. Maybe in some markets, but overall I don't think so. So, it's really hard to do this, and that's why and and honestly, it's imperfect. Because even though even if we had perfect history going back 100 or 200 or 300 years, the past does not dictate or exactly say that we are definitely going to have exactly what happened in the past happen in the future. I think that it's, it's really good and helpful to look at the past numbers and evaluate those and say, hey, look, you know, there's, this is what the range has been. You know, it's possible we could see a, a 99% increase in property values in a single year. We've not seen that historically, but you know, the highest we've seen is whatever it is in your marketplace, you know, 14% or 9% or 8%. But you know, could it be 99? Sure. Then it's great. It's a bonus, right? Could it be negative 99? Sure. Is it unlikely? Yeah. I mean, the biggest decline we've seen is whatever. You go look at your history and you find out what that is. And you figure out how frequently that happens. Sort of like what I did with our mortgage interest rate confidence meter. When people like say, you know, I think I'll be able to get 3% interest rates forever. I'm like, I don't think so. You know, historically, they're only about 2% of the time. You know, looking at back data as to what mortgage interest rates were, we only saw, you know, 3% mortgage interest rate about 2% of the time. So for you to think that you're going to be able to get 3% in the future for the next 10, 15, 20 years while you're acquiring properties, it's silly. I mean, I think that's an unrealistic expectation. Okay. So- when you're looking at these things, it's really hard to estimate these probabilities, but I think you do the best you can and you update it over time. You're like, look, I really think that this is unlikely or I think that this is more likely. And we have this recency bias where we think that what has happened recently is more likely to happen in the future. And I think there's a little bit of truth to that. You know, it's easier to go to 4.5% interest rates when we're at five and they've been between four and five for the last five years. But does that say that we can't do 18? No, we've seen 18% interest rates. Okay, but there's a recency bias but don't be don't, don't be fooled into thinking that because they've always been between 3 and 5 that they will always be between 3 and 5. That is not the case. Okay. Now, one imperfect, and this is not a perfect solution, but one imperfect alternative is to estimate a reasonable range of what appreciation might be, rent appreciation might be, mortgage interest rates might be, stock market rates of return might be, inflation and estimate like what they might do and then apply all of those things combined. So imagine modeling your portfolio and you say, look, okay, I've got whatever it is, $50,000 now, and I plan on buying a property as soon as I can save up a down payment. And I plan on buying another one. I'll continue saving at this current rate plus whatever I'm making from the property. And I'll save up and I'll buy another property after that. And I'll buy another property after that as soon as I save up down payment. And I'll buy properties as quickly as I can until I get to 10. Then when I get to 10, I will hold on to them until I get until the property values increase enough and I pay down the loans enough where I can sell off a certain number of them pay off the remaining properties that I have, and actually live on the cash flow, have the cash flow for the properties that are paid off be enough to support me as being financially independent at some point in the future. That's my plan. My plan is to acquire part. Maybe I'm doing nomad. I'm put 5% down in order to do these. I'm going to do a number of nomads that I can get I'll get to 10, and then I do that. And you say to yourself, okay, how do I estimate the probabilities of all this, shapes? Like, How do I think about this? Well, I think you take each part. You say, okay, appreciation. Well, appreciation historically has been around three. but there have been some years when we've seen you know six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent. and there's some years when we've seen negative one, two, three, four, five percent. so, you kind of do this distribution and say, okay, appreciation is probably about three percent on average, but sometimes it can be much higher, sometimes it could be much less. Same thing with rent appreciation. could be higher than three, could be less than three, but it's usually right around that three percent range over a long-term, you know, period of time. Mortgage interest rates, you know, we'll use what we have today, but you know, interest rates can go up, you know, quarter point, eighth of a point each month. And so we'll kind of use that, and we'll have it snake around. Sometimes it can go up a lot in a row, sometimes it'll go down, but it's never gonna go below. You know, the lowest we've ever seen it is, you know, 2.2%, 2.25%, 2.5%, stuff like that. So we'll never let it go below that, but we'll kind of set this range of what interest rates can do. And we'll have those be random. Stock market similar idea. We'll say, look, you know, the average has been around eight percent. There's sometimes we've seen like you know, 27% a year, sometimes we've seen negative 27% a year. And so we'll go ahead and do these ranges, but most of the time it's going to be right around that seven, eight, nine percent, somewhere in there. And then we might say the same thing with inflation. Inflation can be around three. Sometimes we see it kind of go up to four, five, six, seven, eight recently. Sometimes it's down to negatives, you know, two, zero, one, and maybe it's less likely to be negative. We can kind of set those probabilities. Then we take all of those and we apply them to our strategy of buying properties and we do this analysis using software like the Real Estate Financial Planner which allows us to do this crazy stuff where we model all this. Now this is not a class on that particular stuff, but that's typically what I do when I do this type of modeling in the Real Estate Financial Planner software. I will go take like the stock market rate of return and I'll say, You know, I want it to be around an average of eight. In this case, it's about 7.8. Sometimes it's as low as negative 15% in a year. Sometimes it's as high as 30% a year. But on average, it's around this 8%. And most of the time, it's in this kind of like core 0 to 15% return, with some years being better than others and so like that. And then each month that we do our analysis, we run this a 1,000 times, and we say this is the random range of what stock markets do. And then we look at how likely things are to be that way. Same thing with property appreciation. We say, look, the average is around three. So it's right around here. Sometimes it's as low as negative six in a year. Sometimes it's as high as positive 12. And we can look at these numbers where it's mostly in this zero to 6% range. That happens the most of the time. But sometimes we have these outliers and we can use this to analyze each individual property separately or add properties as a whole where they all go up together or they all go independently. Because sometimes some markets do better than others. and If you've gotten to spread out, some neighborhoods do better than others. Whatever you want to do, we can do all that. And then we get these results like this where we could show you the range of values. This is that variance. Remember before on this spreadsheet, I showed you like could be as good as you know 507, oh, sorry, it could be as good as 571,000, but it could be as bad as 507. And then the one where we did the one where we had five properties could be as good as 700,000, but it could be as bad as 375, starting with 500. We do that same idea when we do that analysis of all the variables that so we could see there's a range. It could be as worse, as bad as, you know, seven hundred fifty thousand in this range. It could be as good as two million dollars. the The expected value of it is you know around one point two. And I did the also. I showed you the twenty fifth and the seventy fifth percentile. It shows you that about twenty five percent of the time it's going to be around a million, and about seventy five percent of the time it's going to be you no know, less than one point four or whatever that is. And so we can see this range of values and how the entire investment portfolio will do in terms of net worth and cash flow, and time to financial independence, and all that stuff. And then what we really can do is we could say, look, I'm comparing two strategies. I wanna know what's gonna be riskier for me, what's gonna have the widest range of variance, what's gonna be the one where I am most likely to succeed, but also it gives me a good chance of achieving my goals, and we can compare the two. So for example, in one case here, I'm buying 20% down rentals, in the other case I'm buying um, 5% down Nomad rentals, and you can see the Nomad one gives you a lot more upside a lot higher expected value. That's this dotted line here. Your expected value of doing Nomad is like 2.2 versus an expected value of, uh, let's see, whatever this is, about 1.2 if you do 20% down rentals. And the downside is not as bad. I mean, look, the difference between the, the worst case scenario, your like worst run putting 20% down is about the same as your worst run when you do the Nomad strategy. But the Nomad strategy, the, the best run for 20% down is about 2 million. The best run for the Nomad strategy is about 4.5 million. And that's what we want to look at. We want to look at how these risks compare and see what the range of the outcomes might be when we're looking at this, because we could have a much higher expected value and a much higher upside without that much more or no more downside when we look at it. And by comparing these different strategies and doing different things, we can compare things like 5% down Nomad versus 5% down nomad where we pay off properties first, or 5% down nomad where we actually sell off part of our properties and pay those off in full. And we can look at these different things and see how they vary. And they could do that with things like net worth or cash flow, and this is one just showing you how long it takes you to be financially independent. And this is the uh, 20% down one. It shows you that the expected value the like number that is likely to happen is about 30 years in this particular case with all these assumptions. And this is based on norm and norma. if you remember that from a previous podcast episode. Um, but basically it shows you it takes you about 30 years for them to do this, but it could happen as early as 200 months, which whatever that is, you know, a little less than 20 years, um, probably like 18 years or so if I had to guess. And then it could happen as late as way past you know 40 years. It's kind of like the worst case scenario. So you can see the variance in those. And I looked at the uh, 25th percentile It happens at about 300 months and the 75th percentile happens a little over, you know, 420 months or whatever that is. And you can see these ranges of when these things happen. And you can also compare these to see which one gets you the financial independence faster, which is what we covered yesterday. It's like all the different ways we could do, all the different things we could do, all the different ways that we can actually make financial independence happen quicker for us. But that's not the whole story, right? We just showed you that sometimes you can actually have it happen faster. But if you look at it, it's happening faster at the expense of increasing our risk of having some type of catastrophic or significant failure. And I want you to understand that nuance and we'll go into a lot more detail and we'll do a lot more classes on this, but this is the basic idea and I hope you get the basics of it. All right. So in conclusion, focusing on improving your returns, an example, leveraging up is just part of the story. You should also consider risk and probability. You have one life to live, it's not like you can do an unlimited number of these lifetimes and see the average yourself. You're just doing one path, and your path could be the most amazing path or it could be the crappiest, worst path. In most cases, probabilistically, it's going to be somewhere in the middle, right? Because that's just how it is. You can't try an unlimited number of times. You can only try one time. You know, and even if you have money behind you, you can only try one time and then you got to, like, see what the results are. Then you got to take the money you had to kind of set aside and try again. But I mean, if you want to try this, you know, if, if you're if your chance of success is is really, really large, but it only happens very rarely, you don't want to keep doing that because you may run out of time. You may only have like 100 years plus or minus to live. So if it takes you 10 years to kind of see these results to do that, you can't try 100 times. So you want to increase the probability of your success and and eliminate or decrease the number of times you have bad, uh, devastating, you know, gets you out of the game sort of outcomes when you do that. So you should consider probability of success and the variance you might expect to see in your results when you do this. All right. That's all I got for you. I hope you enjoyed this class. This has been James Orr. Have a great day, everybody. Bye bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates.